Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Here's the podcast for The Jeremiah Johnston Show. And don't forget, you can also listen live across the Faith Radio Network Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central or 12 Eastern for the entire hour. And if you want your question read on the live show, go ahead and send it to me at www.askjjj.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Jeremiah Johnston Show. Combining cutting-edge biblical scholarship with meaningful, thought-provoking discussions and practical answers to your questions. It's time to own your faith and be a Christian thinker with our host, author, Bible scholar, apologist, and president of the Christian Thinker Society, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. He is risen, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeremiah Johnston welcoming you to a special Easter broadcast here on Faith Radio Network. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining this broadcast. Of course, this is a regular show on Faith Radio Network, and we thank you for listening all across uh, Faith Radio, both in the Central and Eastern Time Zone. You might be listening right now on the wonderful Faith Radio app, or perhaps uh, you're joining us later through the variety of archived podcasts. I, I'm just so thankful to God uh, that we have the podcast for the Jeremiah Johnston Show. I know thousands of people are subscribing to it, and it's great to have you on. This might be your first uh, time joining us, and this is a special program uh, this weekend where we are dedicating the entire broadcast to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. After all, there is nothing more important in the Christian life than celebrating the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I'm so excited because I want you to stay with us for the entire program because by the end of this program, you're going to have a more conversant faith, a more informed faith. It's going to challenge you to live a resurrection-centric life, which is so important. You know, I think often uh, the resurrection, unfortunately, is only something we hear about on Easter weekend or at the odd funeral service. But guess what, friends? The resurrection of Jesus was discussed every single week in the early church. After all, guess how many passages there are on the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. Are you ready for this? 300 passages in the New Testament on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Every sermon in the book of Acts centers on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when Paul gave that powerful, stupendous defense of the Christian faith in front of King Agrippa and Governor Felix, he focused it on the resurrection, and when he got to this point of the resurrection, they thought he had gone mad. I think of Paul on the Aeropagus in Corinth, again, proclaiming the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. As we're going to hear throughout the broadcast today, more than two dozen times, you were promised, if you were following Jesus today, this promise, because he lives, because Jesus lives, we will live also. But have you noticed, you know, we live in an unusual time where so many Christians can fall under this heading. They respect the resurrection, but very few Christians can give a reasonable explanation why they believe evidentially that Jesus came back from the dead physically and bodily. I don't want you to fall under that category of respecting and loving the resurrection, but having that woefully inadequate understanding of the resurrection. And here's the great thing. When we talk about the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, we can talk about history. We can appeal to archaeology. We can appeal to evidence for trusting in and believing that Jesus physically bodily came back from the dead. And friends, I want to remind you of something right now about the historic Christian faith. Christianity is based on history, not myth, 
legend, fairy tales, fables. It is based on, it is based on the historical fact that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave. But have you noticed, we live in a time where society has largely given into despair. Oh, today's message is going to encourage you. Friends, resurrection is what gives us hope. The resurrection of Jesus is what fuels you to get out of bed today to serve Jesus Christ. The resurrection is this unending channel of hope in your life. And yet we're living in a society that has lost hope. So what do we do? Hope is a huge problem. Many have lost hope. Many wonder, you know, what's the point of life anyways? Well, the resurrection, it gives us purpose. You know what? Your whole life can be poured out in a God-serving way because of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to remind you before we step away for our first break, you and I as resurrection Christians, we are the people who bring hope. And so today I'm going to teach you why you can have hope in the face of the most difficult circumstances. There is power available to you. There is a Holy Spirit energizing you who also rose Jesus from the dead. And yet, friends, this is something I want you to be conversant on, too, as a follower of Jesus. There is a new study that I've actually published about. 25% of Christians don't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, guess what? It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, at least a biblical Christian. And so we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, likely the 9th of April, AD 30. And guess what? You're going to walk away from today's program being steadfast, being immovable, talking about what First, First Corinthians 15 says, excelling in good things. But guess what? We can't do it on our own. The resurrection fuels us. I'll be back in a moment with a special message for you on the resurrection of Jesus. Happy Easter. Welcome back to the program. This is Jeremiah. Let's go now to my message Body of Proof, Seven Reasons We Know Jesus Rose from the Grave. Jesus Christ never flinched when he was asked a question. In fact, every time Jesus teaches the Bible in the Gospels, it's interesting, the Pharisees always show up. And if you notice, when you teach the Bible, there's always a Pharisee in the crowd, a second guesser, someone who's trying to trap you. Well, Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, and the Pharisees approach them a nomikos in Greek, or a grammatus, a scribe in Mark's Gospel, and they come up to him, they want to trap him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? This was a trap question. If you know anything about Judaism, there were 613 codified commandments in the Pentateuch. That is the Five, first five Old Testament books. There was no right answer. Do you remember how Jesus responded? And I want you to share it out loud with energy with me, okay? Let me know you're with me. Jesus responds in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In fact, Jesus changes the Shema. The Shema doesn't say mind. It says heart, soul, and strength. Jesus comes back as only he can do, and he changes it, and he said we have to love God with all our mind. I have received 10,000 text message questions primarily from followers of Jesus in churches all over the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Europe. And so I have an informed opinion this morning that there are many of you here, if not every one of you here, are struggling with an unanswered question. And so often many of us, that unanswered question can cause spiritual paralysis in our life. Are you here like that? Many of us, we walked in here today, and if we got brutally honest, if we could be totally transparent, we would admit that 
we're probably just two or three unanswered questions away from leaving our faith. At Christian Thinker Society, we minister to people who are struggling, and many, oftentimes it's believers who are struggling with the curveballs that life throws at them. And you know what's beautiful about the Christian faith? The Christian faith will help you, unlike any other religion or ism in the world, answer the deepest, darkest, unanswered questions that you might be struggling with today. And we can answer it with the Word of God and with the evidence that undergirds our faith. And yet, many churches are unwilling to even discuss your unanswered questions. I mean, oftentimes, we feel like we need to be perfect when we come to church. We can't even admit it because, after all, Christians don't gossip. They just share prayer requests. So I would never share the unanswered question that I have in my Bible study. They might think badly of me. And so we suffer in silence and isolation with that unanswered question. And that's why I appreciate Jesus asks in the gospels. If you count up every question he asks over 300 questions in the gospels. In fact, it's 339 questions to be exact. You should go home and study the 109 questions in Matthew, the 68 in Mark, the 107 in Luke, or the 55 questions Jesus asks in the gospel of John. Jesus never flinched when someone had a question. And yet, when you look what's happening on the landscape of Christianity, we're living in very unique times. As you heard from Carrie, we are living in times where there is more evidence that confirms your faith available at your fingertips than many of the great Christians have had before us. In fact, the scales of truth so tip in our favor, we have an embarrassment of riches of evidences that confirm the truth claims of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is the only religion that befriends Archaeology. I mean, Islam is no friend of archaeology. In fact, Surah 4, Ayah 158 says, Jesus was not crucified. That is false. The best established fact of the ancient world is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. If we cannot believe that about Jesus, we should not believe anything at all about Jesus, or excuse me, about anyone else in the ancient world. I mean, I'm sitting at a at a archaeological site recently in Israel, and there's 300 digs that happen annually. There's two different dig seasons in Israel. And, you know, I'm listening to these skeptics. No one wants to use the Bible. And I'm watching atheist and agnostic archaeologists, and they have five books in their hand because they have to make sure they're digging in the right spot. They have to make sure the sources exhibit verisimilitude, that they're like the world really was in the first century. And do you know what five books these atheist, agnostic archaeologists, many of them Jews, uh, at Mount Zion dig, for example, do you know what five books they have in their hand when they're digging? I mean, I was fascinated. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, and Josephus. So if they're going to use the Bible, you better believe I will. There's a book that came out that Jim Charlesworth edits called Jesus and Archaeology. There is over a thousand references by eight different archaeologists and Jewish authors to the historicity of the scriptures that we find in the Bible lands. I could go on and on and on. The scales of truth tip in our favor. We should not be afraid of any question that we might have. You can find the answer in the Christian faith. And yet, what are we seeing? Because leaders define reality. 98% of Britons will not attend church today. I mean, think about that. The United Kingdom was the gospel sending nation for several centuries, and yet just 2% of Britons will attend church. Do you know why? The BBC did a did a survey, why have you left the church? This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. Do you know what the number one answer was? The church will not answer my unanswered questions. The church will not answer my unanswered questions. What's the result? They do a census every 10 years. Report comes out just in April of this year. 
The United Kingdom has lost 5.3 million Christians in the last 10 years. That is 10,000 a week. And if those numbers continue, there will be no Christians left in my lifetime in the United Kingdom by 2067. How many of you want to see that stopped and turned back? I serve an amazing God who said we can love him with all our minds. I am not a dummy, as Bill Maher said Friday night. I am not an idiot, as Anderson Cooper once said, because I'm a follower of Jesus. I did not check my brain at the the door to become a Christian. It has enriched my life where it has allowed every fabric of my body, soul, spirit, and mind to be attuned with what God has for me. So if I could talk about one subject and only one subject, if this was were the last sermon I would present, there's no doubt about it. I would present body of proof, seven evidences. Why can we believe? How can we know that Jesus of Nazareth physically bodily rose from the grave? Now, really think hard with me now, Bible students, because we don't want to do heresy. Okay. Heresy happens all the time in churches. Do you know what you need to do to do heresy? It's not hard to do heresy. And that heresy, if you don't know that word, it just means we're in error. We're not doing it right. It, all we need to have heresy is to have Jesus in no context or the Bible in no context. That, you notice how all these religions and isms want to make sure they're on good terms with Jesus, especially all the made in America religions, the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. They all want to make sure they hijack Jesus. But we need to make sure that what the Jesus we're discussing is the Jesus of history, the historical Jesus, right? And so let's buckle our seatbelts. What are the seven reasons you can walk out of here knowing that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave? And by the way, why do I say this is most important? Well, the Apostle Paul did. I hope you have your Bible out to 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 3, he says this is a matter of first importance. It is the Greek term protois. Paul gives us 32,407 words in the Greek New Testament. By the way, he gives us 13 of the 27 New Testament letters. And he gives us more than any other New Testament writer except for Luke, who gives us a little bit more with his Luke-Acts um, sequel. So when he says, what I'm about to write is the most important, I pay attention. He said, I'm giving to you what was given to me. And he passes on a creed, an early church creed, that when you look at verses 3 through 7 and 8, you must know there is no passage in the New Testament taken more seriously by Bible scholars and historians than what our te text is this morning. I mean, this is the mountain peak passage. This is the passage that no one questions because of its historicity. And the Gospels, we'll talk about those sources in a moment, they're excellent sources for the resurrection but they're not the earliest. 1 Corinthians 15 comes to us 20 years earlier. And if I had the time, I could show you the timeline. He's passing on a creed. How many of you realize the Bible did not always exist? In fact, the first century Christians did not have a Bible as we have today. They had an oral tradition called a creed. Uh, it would be like our, our Pledge of Allegiance that we grow up saying. We all know the Pledge of Allegiance. That's almost a creedal statement for us as Americans. The church had a creed that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And they didn't just say it once. They said it every time they worshiped together. In fact, the resurrection was so important. Every sermon in the book of Acts focuses on the resurrection. There are 300 passages in the New Testament that reference the resurrection. 
that you're promised more than any other promise more than 24 times in the New Testament what John 14:19 said what Jesus said because I live you will live also and yet if we if I was able to pull every one of you you would probably many of us would probably get that deer in the headlights look that some of my students sometimes get when I call on them you know why do you believe a Jewish criminal physically bodily rose from the dead go and many of us cannot get beyond our Sunday school learning and yet this is something of first importance so I've put together some slides and I hope that you can take something home today that will let you know how important it is. Point number one, how do we know that Jesus rose from the grave? Number one, Jesus' resurrection is the only way we make sense of all the mess and the suffering in our lives. I was speaking in Santa Cruz, California at Twin Lakes Church, a wonderful church in the surfing capital of the world. And as I will today, after every service, you know, my ministry doesn't stop when I jump off these stairs. I love to pray with people and I really love to sign books to people who have unanswered questions. So I'm happy to do that after the service. Lynn Wagner waits in line. She comes up to me and she shows me a picture of her two daughters. And she says, I have a story to tell you. I want to introduce you to Dan and Lynn in this image. She shows me this picture of her daughters, Carrie and Mandy, ages 14 and 16. Less than two weeks after 9-11, they were attending a Luis Palau evangelistic rally, kind of like a Billy Graham rally called Beach Fest. There were 20,000 people there. It was an amazing night. It was a Saturday night. They pile in their minivan and they never made it home. A woman by the name of Lisa was high and drunk on coke and meth, and there were no skid marks. She plowed her Suburban right into their minivan. Carrie and Mandy died instantly. Dan and Lynn had head injuries. When Lynn woke up in the hospital the next day, she asked her friend Sharon, first question that she was able to muster, she had a broken pelvis, she had broken back, she would be in a walker for the girl's funeral, or excuse me, a wheelchair. She looks at Sharon, she said... Are my daughters with Jesus? And Sharon said yes. And she said, praise be to God. Dan, it was even more difficult because he had a head injury. He had to be told multiple times. You know, if you've ever been concussed, you'll ask the same question over and over and over again. And then you'll forget the answer. He had to be told more than once that both of his daughters had died instantly. How do you survive something like that? Because I'm sure a lot of you walked in here with a lot of weight this morning. Some burdens that you're probably carrying that maybe only God knows about. You know... This is the X factor of life right here. This is the reason Christianity is relevant and not just some old irrelevant book. Because Dan and Lynn, when I interviewed them, they, have a, they had a decision to make. Were they going to allow this rupture of life? I mean, I'm a father of five. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. She said the grief was so bad. She said she just tore. They, were, they didn't even do Christmas that year. I'll never forget her saying that in 2000. We just didn't even do Christmas. We couldn't even talk. It took our breath away. But she said, we began to trust in these words that give life. And they said, you know what? The Lord spoke to us. We needed to forgive Lisa. When she finished her prison sentence, we wrote just before she was released, we wanted to see her. And we had to ask permission. The, the prison had never had this kind of request. They didn't quite know how to handle it. So under the observation of a parole officer, Dan and Lynn finally meet Lisa seven years later. We've got to step away for a quick break. When I come back, you're going to hear the final installment of my message, Body of Proof, Seven Reasons I Know Jesus Rose from the Grave. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Jeremiah Johnston Show, and we're going to go right back to this sermon I just recently preached, Seven Reasons 
I know Jesus rose from the grave. This is Jeremiah Johnston, and this is The Body of Proof. Let's go to the message. Lisa's come to faith in Christ in prison. When they see Lisa, Dan and Lynn immediately embraced her, and they held on to her, and they wept. They said, we forgive you. You know what's amazing? Lynn now says that Lisa is like a daughter to her. They go around to churches and talk about the power, the X factor of Christianity, the forgiveness it can bring, the hope, the joy it can bring, despite life's most difficult circumstances. I I asked Dan, I said, what would you have done if you weren't a Christian? He said, I would have wanted to finish the job on Lisa. But because of Christianity, it didn't end our marriage. We have hope. And he said, I'm not living my life for the 70 or 80 years on this earth. I'm living my life for eternity. And I know I'm going to see my daughters again so I can get up, I can go to work, I can live, and I can worship. That is the resurrected Savior that we serve. So, you know, I get frustrated with a lot of resurrection sermons I hear because it's just academic. It's like, how is this going to apply to my life this week? That's how it will apply to your life. It will give you hope. We live in a, in a time where wealth and connectivity, we have people who are hopeless. We have people who are even believers who have given in to despair. How can I have hope through the resurrection of Jesus? Point number two, why do I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? He foretold it. Did you know that the early church had a hashtag? It was hashtag on the third day. This was the early church hashtag. Jesus had this amazing way of messianizing passages or eschatologizing passages. He would read passages in the Old Testament and he would say, guess what? This applies to me. He did that in Luke chapter four. Grew up in. Can you imagine wanting to kill, kill me after I spoke? Well, that's what they wanted to do to him after he gave his programmatic sermon in Luke four. He pointed at Isaiah 61, one and two, said this is fulfilled. And then they wanted to kill him after he preached that. He does the same thing with Hosea 6, two. He says this is about me. On the third day, I will, I will be able to raise my life. I will be, be resurrected from the dead. Now, let me show you how important Jewish burial traditions are. Check out this picture of the Mount of Olives. I want you to see this. You see this Mount of Olives and those of you campuses that are watching, we're looking out on the Temple Mount. Do you know how sacred Jewish burial traditions are? This image will show you. There are at least 150,000 Jewish bodies buried on the Mount of Olives because they believe when Messiah comes, he will step foot on the Mount of Olives. And guess what? They, no matter where they are on the Mount of Olives, they're buried with their feet facing the temple. Do you know why? They don't even want to have to turn around, you know, in the resurrection. They can just follow Messiah right in. Jewish burial traditions are sacred. No Jew would allow the bones of a loved one, even one who was condemned as a criminal, to go unnoticed. Okay? Think of Desmond Doss in that movie Hacksaw Ridge where he kept going back to save another soldier. And some say he saved 50 or 100. That's what Jewish burial traditions were like in the time of Jesus. Okay? Everybody got buried. You knew where your family remains were. If I had more time, I would go deeper. Number three, Jesus not only foretold it, he demonstrated resurrection power. Jesus was a popular exorcist. In fact, we often miss that every time Jesus came to town, he did miracles and he performed exorcisms. He was attacking. He said of Satan in Greek, your kingdom is telos eki. It is coming to an end. A kingdom more powerful is here. And he would cast out demons. And you know, it's fascinating. We actually have archaeological discoveries in the second, third, fourth, maybe even the first with the Jesus cup, where magicians who had nothing to do with Christianity knew this name Jesus had power and they would use it in their exorcism. So just let that sink in for a moment. He demonstrated it. Now, Jesus didn't just 
foretold it, he said, you know, I should probably demonstrate what kind of resurrection I'm talking about. So we see that with Jairus's daughter, the ruler of the synagogue in Mark 5. We see that with the widow of Nain's son, Luke 7. He actually touches the buyer. He would have been ceremonial unclean. None of that mattered to Jesus. He said, necrosagairo, and the boy who was dead stood up. The third miracle is the most stupendous. I love this. I was studying this morning, um, verse 43, and I was thinking about Jesus shouting. Did you know that Jesus raised his voice? In fact, Jesus yelled at death. He showed up. Lazarus was dead four days. His body stinketh, according to the King James Version. He could not have been more dead. In fact, Jewish burial traditions believe that the spirit of the dead hovered hovered over the body for three days. And on the fourth day, the spirit left through the nostrils and the face was changed. So in the Jewish mindset, he could not have been more dead. And Jesus walks up, he yells, he, with a loud voice, he says, Duro exo, come forth. And can you imagine the scene? And so think about this next slide for a moment. I want you to check this out because think about resurrection and people who have to die twice. Okay, I've written about this at a scholarly level. I want to try to explain it at a popular level. Lazarus is actually buried in two different places. Get this, the place on the left is Bethany. That's where Jesus said, come out. And then he migrated with his family to the island of Cyprus where he died a second time. Why? Because Jesus was the first fruit resurrection, a body that would never die again. He served as an adumbration. I don't think Lazarus was afraid this second time around, do you? So isn't that fascinating? Two different burial spots for one person. I find that fascinating. Point number four, Jesus' bodily resurrection was not what his disciples or any other Jews, for that matter, anticipated. In fact, when Jesus gave those, you know, hashtag passion predictions, do you remember what Peter said? God forbid, Lord, this may never happen to you. And do you remember when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? You know, you're standing in the way of my messianic program that I'm bringing to earth. No Jew expected the Messiah to die. In fact, I just wrote about this in the Macmillan textbook for college students. There is no motivation in Judaism to make up a resurrection story if it didn't happen. I mean, think about it. In the Maccabean uprising in, in the 150 BC, you know, they were killing Greeks because they wanted to simply make Judaism you know, open. Um, they were Maccabean, uh, this Maccabean uprising, these were great heroic stories, but no one invented up a resurrection narrative. They believed their spirits went on to God and the righteous compartment of Sheol. No Jew expected a Messiah to die on the cross, no less, and even, even more, a physical bodily resurrection. How do we know this? Well, we can look at Dead Sea Scrolls like they have at the Museum of the Bible. The War Scroll, 4Q285, that is the Dead Sea Scroll found in K4 at Qumran, document 285. It says, when the Messiah comes, he will kill the Katim, that is the code name for Romans. He will even kill the Roman emperor, and the Roman occupiers will die. The corrupt priesthood will be cleansed, and Messiah will rid the Jewish people of the Roman occupiers. This is, in my opinion, why Judas had such a struggle with the ministry of Jesus. He wanted a conquering Messiah. No one expected him to lay down his life. And yes, there was Isaiah 53, but you cannot say that every Jew of every sect thought that the Messiah would pour out his life. How do I know that? Well, in the Aramaic Targums that come later, and they were certainly developing in the time of Jesus, this would be like the, the living Bible, kind of a paraphrase. 
they actually eliminate that passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. So it's very important as a critic of Christianity, I would have a very difficult time coming up with why there are any Christians in the first place. Their founder had suffered the most heinous way to die. Crucifixion was so bad... And I read this recently in a book by Martin Hengel, the great German scholar. Do you know that, do you know what source gives us more, a more detailed description about crucifixion than any other source? The New Testament Gospels. Crucifixion was so bad, so ugly, Romans didn't even discuss it, let alone write about it. So if we didn't have the New Testament Gospels, we really would not know a lot about the juridical procedure that Jesus went through. Everything, though, we see is consistent with the sources, which leads to point number five. Are you with me? Say yes if you're with me. Okay, number five. The sources written in archaeological overwhelmingly support the resurrection narrative embedded in the Gospels. Everything we read in the Gospels smacks of authenticity. Females go to the tomb, and I want you to see these tombs, these slides, okay? It's really important we know something about Jewish burial traditions because people like Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan say, you know, Jesus' body wasn't buried, it was left on a cross and it was eaten by dogs. That is fake news. We cannot, we cannot accept that historically. So here's the Emmaus tombs. Most Jewish tombs were a meter square, and 80 to 90%, if you're watching from the different campuses, I'm pointing at that meter square, you know, you would put the body in horizontally. Some of the, the times you could go in, you could pray, you could perfume the body. Jesus would not have received an honorable burial, but he would have received a proper burial. So the women coming to the tomb, he's in the tomb 39 hours. After Shabbat, they come Sunday morning. That's their first opportunity. They're bringing spices. They don't know if Jesus' body had been spiced. They wanted why his body would stink. They would do seven days of mourning privately. They come to the tomb. And keep in mind, if you're a female in the first century, you're not, you never got, you weren't five feet tall. You were probably 4'10, 4'11. You probably weighed 90 pounds. And even that, they're concerned about who will move the stone away. Let's check out the next slide. That would be a commoner's tomb. The next slide shows you what a wealthy tomb would look like. Let's go to the next slide if we can. Uh, slide number seven. This is the Herodian family tomb. If you've been to the land of Israel, this is right down the road from the King David Hotel. Do you see the difference? You see the massive circular stone. That would have weighed hundreds of pounds, a diameter of about five to six feet. Jesus was buried in something like this, uh, but probably a meter square, but also a circular, because they say, who will, who will roll the stone away for us? And then let's check out the next slide, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. This is, without a doubt, in my opinion, the spot of not only Jesus' crucifixion, but the edicule is the very place of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. I love the garden tomb. I have a, a Jewish lacquer painting of the garden tomb in my office, but that tomb is, a, is probably from the Hasmonean period. It's probably 200 B.C. It's too old. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was buried in a what kind of tomb? A new tomb. And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has a dynamic history because... Helen in 326 AD, the mother of Constantine, she comes to Jerusalem. And this is some, you know, people in that time, in the first 200 years of the church, they didn't really move. There was a great village memory. And guess what Hadrian, the emperor, did after the Jewish revolt of 132 to 135? He thought Christians and Jews were the same, so he expelled Jews out of their homeland. Wouldn't become a Jewish state again for 1,700 years. Renamed it Iola Capitolina. And he, he found out that this holy sepulcher, this is a really sacred spot in Judaism, this place where this, this criminal was said to rise from the dead. 
he actually puts a, a pagan altar to Jupiter, thereby actually preserving the spot. So when, Hel- when Helen comes to town in 326, 325, they say, oh yeah, where that pagan shrine is, that's where it happened. So that is the history. And in fact, National Geographic, next month in Washington, D.C., they're going to have pictures on display. They actually just opened the edicule. When I say edicule, that's that little temple. If we can see the slide one more time. Inside the Holy Sepulcher, there's a little temple that goes over the actual place where Jesus' body, the limestone rock. So inside there, they opened it. And all I can tell you is everything that we found in this recent discovery is consistent with Jewish burial traditions. Even Jody Magnus at the University of North, North Carolina, when seeing this, says, guess what? The Gospels get it right. Why, do, why did the earliest disciples not speak of a phantom resurrection? Why a physical? Because they knew Jesus had died. They knew where he was buried. That tomb was empty. And then they begin to have these resurrection experiences, these appearances of Jesus, which leads us to number six. It is the only convincing explanation for the conversion of those who did not follow Jesus during his ministry. The way I like to say it, and maybe you want to say it this way, Jesus did not only appear to those who believed in him. He appeared to those who doubted him and even those who were opposed to him. Let me take one example. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us know how difficult our family is to reach? And when I study the Gospels, no one in Jesus' family believed in him outside of his mother, Mary. In fact, look at this passage in Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter that uh, his, his friend said in a very pejorative sense? And they took offense at him. Not even his brothers believed in him, John 7, 5. Mark 3, 21, they actually said he's nuts, he's out of his mind. What caused his brother, his family, to believe in him? In fact, if you have a brother, raise your hand for me. I want to see if you have a brother. We have a lot of brothers in the room. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? Exactly. James is working in his shop. He's humiliated by brother Jesus, who was just massacred. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and said, bro, check it out. My side? Yep, I'm here. Feel me. Jesus, that James converts because evidence, the resurrection, he becomes a pillar of the church. We know he dies in AD 62, not because the Bible says it. Josephus records it, that James was stoned in AD 62. It's also why I date Acts early before that, because Acts never mentions it. I wish I could go on. That's a great point, but just take my word for it. Number seven, it is the only convincing explanation for the historical fact that everywhere the Christian faith goes... Society is dramatically changed for the better. I have an insert in your book that I'm giving you today for free for my new book that comes out in four weeks. I really pray you'll pre-order it because I've written it for people like Bill Maher, who I watched Friday night talk about idiot Christians, how we need to get rid of religion, how the world would be a much better place if there was no Christianity. You know what I want to say to him when I hopefully do his show? No one was saying that in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, Bill. The church was on point. And people were happy about it. I'm going to land the plane in one minute. I want you to see this picture right now that I just showed in London at our event in May. This is Golders Green in North London. Man was going home and decided that life was enough. He was going to jump off and take his life. My number one question is suicide and mental health, by the way. I have this huge section of my book, and I hope you'll pick up the Bible study as well on what Christians can do about this question of suicide, mental health, depression, anxiety. 
You know what's fascinating about this picture? I want you to study it, if you would, with me. Somebody actually had a rope coming home from work that day. You don't think God is sovereign and providential? Look at this gentleman right here clasping his calf muscles. Another guy is holding him by his belt. These people, these strangers, just going home from work. There was some God complex. and We don't know if these people are Christians or not. But when they saw that, they said, that's not right. We need to help this man. They hold on to him for two hours. You can read the story online. You can download this picture at our Facebook or Twitter page. I want you to look at this picture because I see myself on that bridge. How many of you know sometimes we need to be saved from ourselves? I pray that the resurrection will motivate you to give someone hope this week. And this is Jeremiah coming in now. That is one of my favorite messages that I love to present. And it's a message that I've continued to develop over the years. As I said in the introduction, 93,000 words I've written on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And guess what? There's more evidence. And so you just heard seven reasons that I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I call it (laughs) the body of proof for the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to come back more in just a few seconds after this break with more on the case for the resurrection. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. This is Jeremiah. Why can I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? Well, you've just heard seven reasons why I believe Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave, but it doesn't stop there. Those are just some of the most powerful evidences that we have to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, on this power teaching segment on this special Easter program, I want to remind you of some first biblical facts about the resurrection, some evidential facts, and then some of the most exciting new developments in studying the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, first, Bible students, I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you realize the power of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus caused Christians to desire to be buried together? Now, I don't want you to miss this subtle fact because I think you're going to appreciate it. When you drive by a burial ground today, it is called a what? That's right. It's called a cemetery. It's called a cemetery. Uh, Where did this word cemetery come from? come from. This is one of those exciting things I didn't have time to get into in my message. So if you've if you've missed any of this program today, Body of Proof, Evidence for the Bodily Resurrection of Jesus, you're going to want to listen to the entire program. We're coming at you with fastballs for the resurrection. But I want to ask you what caused this new term to be invented called cemetery. I think that today in our modern modern understanding, we get so busy, especially in the West, We don't even stop to figure out how did these terms come to be. Well, did you know the term cemetery was invented just after the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? And it was invented by believers in Jesus Christ. So if you and I, let's let's go back in time for a moment. If you and I had been born and lived during Jesus' ministry and we died after the resurrection and we were among the Christians who decided that we wanted to get buried together as a family of God, what were some of the options for us? Well, there were mausoleums. That's a burial term. That was mainly, though, for the wealthy, the Roman generals, the aristocrats. There was a sepulcher or sepulchum where you would have the ashes collected. Uh, Or there was a monumentum, and this was fewer and far between, where if you had done some great achievement. And those were the only three terms for burial, mausoleum, sepulcher, and monumentum. Um, The Christians decide to come together and be buried together, friends. This is so cool about this power teaching moment. Did you know that 1,500 bodies were dumped 
per year in the city of Rome alone. And those were primarily the bodies of slaves. That's right. Uh, if you wanted to, quote, free your slave, you, you know, just before death, you would do that. So then you didn't have the expense of burying them together in a mass burial pit. Christians come together believing so powerfully in the physically bodily, physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. They said, hey, we want to be buried together. Think of, in your mind's eye, if those of you who have traveled to Rome and beyond to the catacombs, those underground areas where Christians were buried together, and they come up with a brand new term in Greek called koimeterion. Do you know what koimeterion transliterates to today? Cemetery. And do you know what cemetery means in the original? Dormitories. Sleeping rooms. Why? Because believers know that death was just a temporary comma. It was not the period of life. Christians, because of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, so powerfully believed that Jesus would raise them from the dead together that they said, you know what, we're going to be buried together. Let's just call it sleeping rooms, dormitories, because after all, we will stand up resurrected in Jesus. I think that's just something powerful when we think about the case for the resurrection of Jesus. What's other, what, what else is interesting to me is I want you to become conversant in the resurrections uh, that occur in Scripture. And, of course, there are several of them. Just in the New Testament alone, Jesus adumbrated, he foreshadowed his coming physical resurrection by performing three resurrection miracles. Of course, first in Luke 8, this is very important, verses 40 to 56, Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue from the dead. We hear Jesus in his native tongue in Mark 5, 41, I think it is, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. We hear it in the Aramaic. This is a very old tradition that's embedded in Mark chapter 5. There's a second area, Jesus, a second resurrection miracle that, again, I want you to learn. It comes to us from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead in Luke chapter 7. Do you remember this? This is a fascinating thing because, again, the little boy had died that day. In Jewish burial traditions, and you heard me touch on this a few segments earlier in Body of Proof Evidence for the Physical Bodily Resurrection of Jesus, in the Jewish context, if you died, you had to be buried before sundown, or if you died during the night, you would be buried the next day. So the little boy had just died. The funeral procession is happening. Can you imagine this in your mind's eye? Jesus walks up, and the all-powerful God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, he stops the funeral procession. He touches the funeral buyer. That would have, by the way, made him ceremonially unclean. Luke 7:15, so powerful, the little boy sat up. Can you imagine being in that funeral procession? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Can you imagine it? Jesus caused the little boy to sit up who was dead heading to his funeral procession. I think it is such a powerful thing to contemplate 
And friends, I just want to encourage you, know these passages so that you can defend them and so that you can just be have them on your lips, be conversant. And of course, there's the most stupendous miracle of all before Jesus' own resurrection, and that is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, duro exo. I love that in Greek. Jesus, did you know in John 11:43, Jesus shouts at death. He says, duro exo, Lazarus, come out. It's so powerful. And you know what? When Jesus uh, is asked by John's disciples, are you the one who is to come? Do you remember how Jesus responded? The blind receive their sight. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life. That's the power of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. This has been another power teaching moment on the Jeremiah Johnston Show. I'll be back after this break with some final thoughts. Again, he is risen. Welcome back to the final segment of this special Easter broadcast. Friends, he is risen, and I'm going to other questions that I've been asked. Jeremiah, what is the most important passage related to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? Are they in the Gospels? Thank you so much, Steve, for texting in this question at AskJJJ.com. Steve, the Gospels are very important witnesses to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, but they are in no way the earliest witnesses to document, uh, speaking of the biblical chronology to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps the earliest explicit biblical witness that we have to the physical resurrection of Jesus, the passage that's taken more seriously by Bible scholars of all stripes today than any other passage of the New Testament, comes to us from 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. And this is a powerful passage that I want to remind you of, Steve. For I hand it on to you, As of first importance, by the way, that's the Greek word protois. Paul is saying this is the prototype. This is the most important thing that you need to know as a Christian. What I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appears to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then Paul finishes it in verse 8. Then he appeared to me also. This passage, Steve, provides us with the oldest resurrection tradition in the New Testament. It reaches back to within a few weeks of the resurrection event itself. The Apostle Paul declared that the resurrection of Jesus was a matter that was the most important thing in the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul passes on the most important and earliest Christian tradition or creed. Now, uh, Steve, we moderns, we have creed-like statements as well, so don't let that word creed um, make you uncomfortable. We have a creed, if you're an American listening to this broadcast, American students recite a tradition or creed called the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and so on. Um, The Star-Spangled Banner begins most major sporting events in the United States. A creed is defined, Steve, as a formal statement of Christian belief. In the Old Testament, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, would be a perfect example of a creed. Hero Israel, you remember that passage? Um, this would be characterized as that. It functioned as a creedal, specific faith statement for centuries in Judaism. Now, a couple things that are very important about 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Paul didn't invent the creed. 
Uh, That is evident when he says, I want to hand on to you what I have received in verse 3. Earlier in his letter, Paul used the same formulaic language when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you in describing the communion process. Paul was had no problem in the passages, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians as a book, passing on these wonderful traditions that predate not only his letter to the Corinthian church, Steve, but what earlier Christians came to believe about the resurrection. So when you think about this, Paul wrote... 13 of the 27 New Testament book books. He gives us 25% in the New Testament, but of all the things he wrote, nothing was of greater, clearer importance to the Christian faith than what he writes in first Corinthians 15, three through seven. So I've got some immediate steps. We've got to jump in 60 seconds. Um, I want to encourage you memorize as an immediate step from today's broadcast. Memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. It will serve you well in your evangelism and in your own devotional spiritual life. Second thing that I want to encourage you to do is take time to listen to this broadcast again. Write down all seven reasons, what I believe are the seven best reasons we should believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And be among the group of Christians that's informed that lives a resurrection-centric life, that it permeates their life. And friends, I just want to encourage you today, have hope. I'm going to end right where I began. You have nothing to fear. There's no reason to be hopeless. Jesus promised in John 14:19, because I live, you will live also. God bless you. This is the Jeremiah Johnston Show. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today. Happy Easter. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Johnston. Thanks for listening to the podcast from the Jeremiah Johnston Show. I definitely want to hear from you, so if you have a follow-up question from today's program, you can submit it to me at www.askjjj.com. You'll also see how you can connect with us from there across social media. And don't forget, these conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now to the Faith Radio Network at www.myfaithradio.com. And to avoid missing future editions of the Jeremiah Johnston Show, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. You can do a Google Play RSS feed. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of the program.